Some people forget the true meaning of orb day. It isn't just about pondering your orbs. It's about coming together in meat space and pondering your orbs with fellow voidlings as we all embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to the first ever live episode of Embrace the Void. Coming to you from a very rambunctious void. We are here at beautiful QED Manchester. I am your currently meat-spaced host, Aaron Rabinowitz. And that is not where the applause go. Uh, and my guest this week is Dr. Debbie Ging, professor of digital media and gender in the School of Communications at Dublin City University. Dr. Ging teaches and researches on gender, sexuality, and digital media with a focus on digital hate, online feminist, anti-feminist men's rights politics, incel subcultures, and the radicalization of men and boys into male supremacist ideologies. Basically, our entire show's greatest hits. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Ging, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, and thank you for having me on. I'm very privileged, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> uh, no, thanks for coming on. These are topics that we get to a lot on this show, um, and I really enjoyed getting to look at your research. I enjoyed your talk earlier today. I appreciate everyone who's willing for another dose of what's gonna be some very upbeat comedy. <laughs> uh, do you wanna start by just giving folks a little bit about your background and what brought you to study incels and other online hate? Sure. So my background more generally is in uh, gender and media studies, and I have been um, looking at men's politics, uh, men's rights politics more broadly for the last 20 odd years. And so uh, I got particularly interested in the different types of um, men's movements earlier on, the, you know, in the, in, even as far as the 90s, there were quite a lot of pro-feminist men's movements um, in the US and the UK in particular. But the anti-feminist men's movements were the ones, unfortunately, that survived and got most media coverage and became uh, most powerful. And then I kind of followed them, really, as they migrated onto the internet. And then, uh, as I, as I mentioned earlier um, this morning, the, the kind of seismic change came with the transition to um, social media and user-produced mm. content. And this was a, a real turning point in terms of how I noticed, you know, how they started expressing their ideologies, um, the things that they were interested in changed considerably, mm -hmm. uh, but also how they did politics changed considerably. So this was this was to me kind of mind blowing because it was a very 
uh, sudden change, but a very uh, um, a very kind of drastic, significant one as well, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I definitely want to talk about how that transition looks. Uh, first, though, just to give people sort of a sense of things, what would you say is like the state of the union of male hate online? Like how voidy is it out there right now? Well, I mean, all of the indications are that it's growing. Um, that you know that is becoming bigger, although it's very difficult to quantify. But the Center for Countering Digital Hate did a a survey uh, or a piece of a report last year. I think it was last year, which shows that the incel community alone has increased sixfold. Um, so that's pretty significant. It you know, and as well as growing hmm. uh, numerically, it seems to be becoming more mainstream um, as well. So it's it's spreading. Uh, in different, it's also you know it's this this two way flows. It's radicalizing people into more extreme spaces, but then there's this flow in the other direction, whereby its ideas are becoming increasingly visible on on mainstream spaces and in mainstream discourse. Yeah, could you like unpack that sort of process a little bit? What is what you would think of as like maybe the traditional account of how hate spreads versus what you feel like y'all are seeing in the research, especially online. With the incel research, uh, I worked with um, some political scientists, computer scientists in University of Exeter, Stefan Beale and uh, Lewis Brace. They do all the big data stuff. Um, and it's quite, it, it got quite technical in terms of what we were trying to do because all of the studies of the incel culture in particular um, tend to be quite static. So, and that's to do with, you know, how easy or not easy it is to do internet research. So they take a kind of a snapshot of content from a platform and then they subject it to uh, thematic or discourse analysis and come up with like, what are the key linguistic or rhetorical or ideological uh, characteristics of that community? And that research has kind of been done over and over and over again. So we wanted to try and track the, um, uh, you know, the dynamism of, of the community and to look at it over time and across different platforms. So, you know, Lewis and, and Stefan scraped a, a massive, it's the biggest database of, of incel content, I think. That's you must ever. be so proud. <laughs> well, I, I didn't scrape it. <laughs> I, I had no hand actor part in, in that end of it. So, but yeah, uh, and, and, and we're making it available um, to, to the wider research community. But that's like, I don't know, 11 million, um, posts or threads uh, across seven different platforms, but it was also across time. So it was from 2014 to 2022. Um, and so, I mean, when you start mm. doing this really big data analysis, it's obviously a little crude. It's not contextualized. And as we know, a lot of these subcultures, for want of a better word, are very complex. And you know, they're, 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 it's very difficult to understand them. Their language, their lexicon is very arcane. Their imageries are very difficult to understand unless you're kind of immersed in them. So a lot of it is very context dependent. So when you start doing like a really big uh, data analysis like this over time, we were looking specifically at uh, violent extremist language. And co you know, we built a dictionary for that and then it's subjected to machine uh, analysis you're losing context, but it is very useful in giving you a kind of a, a big, you know, broad stroke or broad brush mm -hmm. analysis over time. So we could see then, um, we could see that the, the language 
of violent extremism was becoming increasingly more extreme over time as, as a kind of the, the top level finding of that research. Can you say a bit about like what are the mechanisms that y'all looked at for both sort of the turning up of the temperature of animosity within the communities and then also the exporting of that animosity? Yeah, I mean, again, a, a big data analysis isn't going to show you that. Okay. So we're looking more at the kind of mechanisms um, by which that happens in extremism studies. So you have centri centrifugal and centripetal forces, and that's effectively like centrifugal forces is like uh, pulling people down the rabbit hole, pulling people into the community. So that's a kind of radicalization process. Whereas centripetal, am I right? Yeah, mm -hmm. centripetal <laughs> is like outwards. And that's like the mainstreaming process where you're, uh, and we did a, a, a separate paper on this to look at um, URLs or outlinking and what, what mm -hmm. we call exolinks. So that's another way the ideas spread is by, uh, by the number of uh, posting exolinks out to other extreme communities or other communities of the manosphere so that members of, of the Encelosphere are constantly being directed out to alt-right, far-right and other manosphere sites through exolinks. So this, it's kind by of- By exolinks, you just mean like links to other sites, links to out, other out, groups. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it's, it's links out rather than links that bring them in, which would be centrifugal. Mm. I think. Or did yeah. I get that wrong? I don't know. Right. I can't remember. So you got your imports I'm trying, and your I'm thinking exports. of a salad spinner. I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, so you have radicalization, pulling people in. You've got mainstreaming, which is, you know, pushing them out, pushing the ideas out as well. Yeah. And so you mentioned the difficulties with this and analyzing this data. And that could be important for things like avoiding misinformation or maybe even like a moral panic about certain parts of these issues. Um, how do y'all deal with things like a lot of these communities, you know, irony is kind of the stock and trade. Often they're being deliberately provocative. Do y'all attempt to distinguish at all between like authentic and inauthentic hate? Or do you just kind of treat any all the same for these purposes? I think, um, yeah, I think you've, you've identified a key problem with doing big data analysis uh, on these kinds of communities is that you can't distinguish if you're doing a, a really large-scale linguistic analysis. It's, it, it is effectively decontextualized. And I personally do much more qualitative research mm -hmm. and tend to, even if I'm working with large data sets, so another aspect of the project we're still working on is image analysis. So we're looking at, we've scraped like 500 images off each of the main sites, the main insult sites. And we tried to, to build a machine classifier and mm -hmm. it was just like a complete waste of time in, mm -hmm. in, in the sense that it's just grouping all the people, you know, pic pictures of people together, pictures of landscape together. It's, it's not particularly useful for what we're trying to do. And so what we've ended up doing is uh, writing a code book and actually doing manual analysis mm. on each of those images. But, and this is what, when it gets really tricky because you've got three people doing that, three coders, uh, and yet, you know, you look at an image and you think, oh, that's, that's a fairly innocuous image. It's just a guy standing in front of a car. Mm. And then you kind of go, mm, put it through reverse image search. And it turns out, oh, he's, he's, one of, he's a killer. He's a convicted killer. Ah, okay. So, you know. John Rogers or somebody like that, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so contextualized and everything is kind of, I think I know the meaning of that meme, mm -hmm. which is a, 
you know, it's a parody of a pastiche of a meme that came out in 2014. And then I check on Know Your Meme and it's no, actually that's parody of parody of parody of a meme. Right. And there's an earlier version of this meme. And in fact, this is like a, a subversion of the, and you're like, oh. And the confusion is the point. I mean, the mimetic yeah. density is there to keep you out, to keep exactly. you confused, to keep you wondering all these things. Exactly. Right? So we do our best, but for me, uh, the you know the manual coding that involves that level of interrogation and, and context is really important. Yeah, and I think quali I mean hopefully we can all agree here that qualitative analysis counts as science. That not all things have to be quantitative. Um, you know, it sounds like you've spent an inordinate amount of time embedded in the void. What would you say, based on your sort of qualitative experience, are the central? tentpole ideas that are kind of driving, like you said, bringing people in and increasing the animosity? I mean, it differs from community to community because they all have their own mm -hmm. sets of concerns. There's no unifying. The unifying concept effectively, well, there's two, I would say, is the red pill. Uh, so it's the idea of the cult and of being enlightened. Uh, so once you're enlightened to life's ugly truths, which is that, you know, we live in a a globalist, um, gynocentric, pro-feminist conspiracy. Uh, once you're enlightened Obviously. to that truth, you're, you're red-pilled, and that pulls them all together, and it pulls the, the alt-right and the far-right in, obviously, as well, and a bunch of other conspiracy theories. That, that is the glue. Uh, the other glue is evolutionary psychology. Uh, and, you know, fascination. Another fan favorite from the show. Yeah, an absolute fascination with, you know, the idea that, um, Nature is binary and we're all, you know, hardwired uh, genetically to behave in very particular ways that happen to be extremely heteronormative. Um, so, you know, they're using a pseudoscience all the time to validate their ideas. Mm. Um, and this wasn't the case with the previous men's movement. They would no interest in evolutionary psychology and to the extent that they had any interest in you know, theories of gender. It was kind of gender role theory. Mm -hmm. um, this is a huge, a, a really significant change, is this um, underpinning of everything with um, Evo Psych, um, as they call it. So that runs through all of them as well. Mm. But incels obviously have, you know, a set of concerns that are very much about lookism in society and, you know, the fact that society is unfair and everything is stacked against them. Whereas, you know, somebody at the really mainstream end of the spectrum, like Andrew Tate, is, you know, his core concern is power and how to how to help men, well, teach men. Uh, again, he's, you know, this is commercial, uh, to to regain male power and to, to regain frame, as, as he calls it. But a lot of that is motivation. It's mm -hmm. money. It's, you know, how to earn money, how to, uh, how to regain power and structure. Um, in your life, and that's how they kind of get pulled in. Um, a lot of the content is f the hashtags are, you know, motivation, mindset, um, whatever. Right. So they seem fairly innocuous. But then once you kind of get into it, it's not just about fitness and, and self improvement. You know, there's, it's, it, the misogyny is, is extreme then. Yeah. Um, the within that. It seems like the motivation aspect is, is fairly significant, right? So you have these ideologies, but they are mostly sort of explanations for symptoms that people are experiencing. Why am I having these problems? Oh, it's because of women. Um, a, you know, a common term for 
folks in these communities, I see, you know, derogatory is something like Lost Boys, or more specifically, Jordan Peterson's Lost Boys. Um, and I think that ties into the fact that there's maybe an issue going on here involving the crisis of meaning, which has traditionally been a kind of conservative <laughs> critique of liberal culture that we don't provide meaning for individuals or we're, we're taking away the meaning that traditional roles have provided. Do you feel like men are facing a kind of unique crisis of meaning that is kind of exploding in these communities? I think they think they are. Um, <laughs> is that any different from actually experiencing one though when we're talking about life's meanings? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they're experiencing a crisis of privilege. Um, we, we, you know, I was talking earlier about uh, Jan and um, Harambam's idea that we're living in this period of uh, epistemic instability, but that would surely affect all genders equally, right? Um, but, you know, the, the reason why these men are responding in this way is because their privilege has been, you know, taken away. They're no longer center stage. And also their masculinity is, has been rendered visible. Um, whereas before it was just neutral, the norm, they were at the center of everything and everybody else was a minority around them. Everybody else had an identity and a name, but now they ha they're just another identity. Yeah, this, this, this is, I think, a common sort of analysis. And I worry, it may be partly true, it also comes off as fairly dismissive. So I think, I think there's something to the need for compassion towards these individuals, and I think you talk about that some too. I, I worry that if we tell them the problem is that they're experiencing a loss of privilege and just to get over it, that that might sort of exacerbate the situation. And, and that's why I sort of raised this, this sort of crisis of being thing. I wonder if there's another message that can be included there about like, they're not just experiencing that, but they're experiencing a loss of understanding of their sense of self and that our society is not doing a good job giving them an alternative. And like, you know, in the absence of water, they'll drink sand. Sure. And, you know, this is exactly the problem that we're grappling with at the moment in terms of the actual interventions. So going out to schools um, and delivering any kind of, um, you know, educational workshops or whatever uh, about gender, gender-based harassment, consent or whatever. The, the minute you talk about male privilege is the minute that the whole thing goes tits up. And the guys start going, we don't have, you know, and there's immediate resistance. And, and I'm working with um, Professor Jessica Ringrose in um, UCL at the moment, uh, precisely on, on, you know, what are we going to do? Um, we, our, our workshops were really successful in, in the UK and in Ireland, with the exception of about 10%. 20% maybe here, 10% because we had smaller schools and, and mm -hmm. less diverse schools. But there was a, a strong element, a minority, but an, an element nonetheless of, of active resistance to the workshops. And, you know, that came from this anti-feminist, um, very much kind of Tate-inspired uh, and, and uh, Manosphere-inspired ideas about, you know, false rape claims and, and inequality, etc. And mm -hmm. so we're grappling still and trying to work through this. How do we reach those resistant masculinities? Um, because the minute you talk about male power and privilege, 
it, it kind of breaks down. And we also have to recognize that male power and privilege is not uniform. And we have to look at this from an intersectional perspective is that, mm -hmm. you know, lots of men don't experience privilege. And, you know, this is where um, Raymond Connell's hegemonic masculinity and then subordinated and marginalized masculinities comes in. Like not all men experience or benefit from the patriarchal dividend in the same way and some benefit very very little from it and so you know if you're out in in um you know socially disadvantaged schools or whatever a lot of these guys are having a really hard time um and maybe to them you know it seems like the girls in their class are doing better or the teachers are always you know mm -hmm. on their case and maybe they don't feel that their economic prospects are great because they're probably not so you know we have to look at uh, race and class and uh, gender you know multiple genders and sexualities you know as as a backdrop or in consort with all of this as well because it's not it's not just clear cut like you know male privilege all the time mm -hmm. um so you know it's really complex uh, and there is a lot of anger and it's how can you tap constructively into that anger mm -hmm. and compassionately without um you know reinstating men kind of center stage it's it's a really tricky balance yeah it's a very hard thing to do with with compassion and empathy yeah and i, I want to dive into that a little bit more before we do, though, one objection that I think you're kind of hinting at that I think is worth discussing, some folks might argue, some folks like Kate Mann, for example, might say that like focusing on men or the manosphere or what's wrong with men is just another form of like empathy, this kind of cultural fixation on men's pain, and that like we don't need to focus on that, we need to focus on other things. How do you feel like you would address that concern? I mean, I think there is some work and there is a lot of discourse out there that is doing what she what she says you know that is centering male pain in a way that's too too sympathetic i suppose to certain political agendas that are trying to reinstate privilege through the articulation of its loss right mm -hmm. but we have to we have to understand this you know we can't just ignore it uh, and we have to understand where the perception of injustice comes from, and we have to understand what void is not being filled. Um, but I think if we focus less on, on the pain and more on, on the impact as well, and on, on, on victims and what impact this has for equality and diversity generally, mm -hmm. you can shift the frame or shift the lens a bit away from the kind of constant, you know, center staging Mm -hmm. of it's all about me kind of thing uh, and try to you know try to to make men young boys who are going through this understand intersectionality or, or relationality yeah right which mm -hmm. is hard because it seems like you mentioned pushback on privilege in your talk you mentioned how important gamergate was to all of this and how central the gamergate playbook remains, like, it seems unavoidable to me to say that to some degree, woke, and I identify in that way as social justice, sub, you know, like attempts to push back on this kind of stuff are fueling this conflict that like, they provide the targets for, you know, they provide attacks, you know, things to attack, right? How do we shift these things without also just feeding into that kind of culture war feedback loop? I don't really know at the moment because it's it, it's kind of exasperating the 
you know, the binarism, the polarization of debate, the culture war logic of the logic of war. How do we get out of this into something more constructive? Um, it's really difficult with the social media that we have because that social media is the architectures, the logic is is profit driven and it's all based on creating as much conflict as, as it possibly can and keeping, you know, division. Um, because that's what, what makes most money for those platforms. So I think, you know, reconfiguring what social media is and how it works is has to be somehow if we're going to continue to have mm -hmm. to play out you know gender politics and sexual politics online we have to rethink social media architectures i think uh, and create i mean already it's not an adequate place right. for democracy because it's privately owned and profit driven like why would we even consider in the first place that social media is the place where we should be having these debates. It's, you know, as long as it's not publicly owned, uh, it's not a public sphere. But mm. we're we've now kind of become inured to treating it like a public sphere, and it's like, oh, there's no alternative. But but there really has to be an alternative because otherwise we just keep going further down this, um, mm -hmm. you know, this rabbit hole of the culture wars. And it's we've seen how divisive and and hateful and problematic it is. Like we're not getting anywhere. You've mentioned a couple of times that this is highly commodified, and that's certainly the case. A lot of this is profit-driven. It makes me wonder, do you have any sense of, is there a profit-driven feminist, you know, feminazi, let's say, like, women's rights extremist end that is also heavily profiting off of angry women? Or is there not? And if not, why that asymmetry, do you think? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean... To some extent, like we're all working for the social media companies, right? We provide them with free content mm -hmm. and free labor. So, you know, the model is just so problematic in so many ways, obviously. Um, and of course, you know, if you own Twitter or whatever, you're gonna love big hashtag movements and, and whatever, because, you know, it's, it's, a t it's an attention economy. Um, but, you know, is there, I think what you're alluding to is more kind of neoliberal feminism, lean-in feminism, hmm. um, kind of po another word for post-feminism maybe, which was so much about, um, it was so linked, so deeply embedded with capitalist logics and, and consumerist logics. It was all about buying and, and self-improvement for, you know, for women who are worth it, kind of, do to quote the L'Oreal ad. I'm curious, do you think there might be some correlations between like the manosphere behaviors and things like gender critical or turf uh, groups, which might be more predominantly um, female and, you know, have similar issues about sort of crisis of meaning regarding the breaking down of gender norms and fears about modernity and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, this is where your mind starts kind of melting and imploding. <laughs> um, Welcome to the void. <laughs> <laughs> because you've got, you've got like gender critical feminists and um, their ilk and their male supporters accusing um, inclusive feminism of being misogynists 
And, you know, where do you even go with that? So, yeah, a breakdown in meaning for sure. Uh, misogyny is just being thrown and hurled from both sides constantly. It's the it's the the weapon of choice. It's, and, and that now is becoming meaningless. Um, each side accusing the other of being misogynist. It's like it's insane. Uh, to, to witness on a daily basis. You know? Is that partly, I mean, so there are critiques of social justice culture that it has allowed everybody to start using these weaponized terms. And so that's just everybody picking up on the currently effective thing to call people. Yeah, and, and, and obviously some gender critical people have decided to wear this as a badge of honor now. Um, you know, they're trying to reappropriate it in a positive way. Uh, others still see it as a slur. Um, all of the things you know that we've thought kind of taken for granted, like queer being a progressive concept, now they are trying to rebrand queer as as an insult, as a slur as well. It, it's you know it's there is a bizarre attention to taking words and concepts and trying to um, imbue them with mm -hmm. new meaning, and it's it's actually quite powerful because it gains traction over time. Um, yeah, I mean it's. Everything seems to be up for grabs as well uh, in this context. So right, that post-truth world. Um, yeah. yeah, you mentioned so making up words. Um, you mentioned red pilling earlier uh, in your talk. You spoke about black pilling. You're one of the few people in the world who I can just ask this flat out. Have you come across the phrase luck pilling in your incel studies? No. Really? Okay. Because mm. they are the only subculture I know of besides me who uses that term, um, which. I understand the term to mean essentially waking someone up to the taboo truth that everything is luck all the way down, which is how they mean it too, but they think it's a really bad thing and it makes them very, very unhappy, it seems to me. Do you feel like, so, so my impression of one way to understand incels is they're a community who's been luck-pilled in the bad way, which is they've been told it's luck all the way down and it's not, it turned them towards a black pill. It's nihil, you know, turned them nihilistic or fatalistic or something like that. Do you feel like they talk a lot about like, how they're just suffering from bad luck and it's all unfair in those kind of ways? Yeah, I mean, like, they feel like they're losers in the genetic lottery, that they have been, you know, well, the ones who feel that there's no point in trying to change their looks because everything is about looks. And, you know, sometimes you have to say, yeah, I mean, in this society, and certainly from where they're sitting, a lot of the socially mediated world is about looks. Uh, it's become increasingly the case and they're seeing all these good-looking people who are successful influencers or whatever being successful um, so this idea is, is really out there in the mainstream this phenomenon is really out there in the mainstream um, as well and it's you know the evolutionary psychology thing as well supports this and again evolutionary psychology is not just a kind of niche pseudoscience that these sub-communities adhere to. It's very much out there in the ether since all of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus stuff. All of that brain science um, kind of opened up the floodgates for, for the much harsher um, kind of on steroids version, um, which was evolutionary psychology. I think it, 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 it it predisposed people, it, it made them kind of more open to it. And it's very attractive to everybody because your, all your problems then are, are biological individual or in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got to fix them yourself through self-improvement. Um, whereas obviously if you acknowledge that that's not the case, um, then the solutions are structural. 
you know, and they cost mm-hmm. society and governments money. So it's very, you know, it's very attractive, this idea of everything being in your hormones and in your genetics and in your brain, in your body, um, is very attractive in a mainstream society, in a mainstream neoliberal uh, capitalist society as well. It's very conducive with that. So it's mm-hmm. not just a niche thing. It's kind of out there as well, I think, um, increasingly. Um, sort of related to that, I guess, a little bit. One thing that I think you mentioned some is the issues around like how conspiracies also tie into conspiratorial thinking. Do you see these communities as like largely conspiracy driven? Does that play into how we should think about, you know, attempts to, um, you know, de-indoctrinate them or things like that? Yeah, I mean, there's an element. They're definitely very um, vulnerable or susceptible to um, conspiracy type ideas. And it was Colin Campbell, I think, in 1977, talked about the idea of the cultic milieu. And, you know, the, the current day Internet is very much a kind of cultic milieu with, with so many ideas flying around and you, nobody knows if this is fake news or if this is true or you go and try and research something um, and you have all these kind of not really academic sites or can you trust this or what can, you know, so it's, it, there's this constant, like, doubt about what's actually reliable um, and what isn't. And so I think it's, that, you know, coming back to that post-truth epistemological instability um, context. And they're presumably, particularly in the incel community, going through a lot of, you know, of their own psychosocial um, issues as well. You would be very susceptible to all of this stuff that's around you. And a lot of it seems to kind of join up then in this globalist great replacement. You know, there's there's these meta Mm -hmm. kind of fascist um, ideas that do pull it all together quite neatly mm-hmm. um, f- if you don't really interrogate the you know the false the falsehoods upon which these ideas are built it can seem like a very cohesive um, very compelling account of things and you kind of go oh yeah and then you're <laughs> you're pilled and then you have the the cultic experience of being part of a new enlightened community and everybody else is deluded and that makes you feel much better right mm. um let me ask as well because i'm an american i think that i'm the center of the universe and our country is the center of the universe obviously <laughs> and all things flow from us which is true um how much of this is like specifically a very american toxic masculinity that is getting exported specifically in this way into other cultures? Do you feel like there are parts that aren't from that culture that are also getting incorporated? Yeah, I mean, it's, it did originate. In, in, you know, this particular iteration of, in inverted commas, toxic masculinity and, and masculinity politics certainly did originate um, from, from US culture. But and it was readily kind of taken up in the UK, in other Anglophone cultures. Also, you know, in Germany, in, the, in some of the Nordic countries, in Sweden as well, you know, spread quite quickly. Um, and I suppose then it becomes regionally inflected by, you know, other either conspiracy theorists or men's rights activists or whatever. So like we have our own local um, group of, of you know, menagerie 
in in Ireland and in the UK, you know, the, the same, that certain people are going to gravitate towards this stuff and, and mm. take it up and have their own kind of version of it. But, but I mean, the, the problem is there. I mean, the sexism, the, the you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the toxicity, the, um, the misogyny is there, but mm-hmm. this is tapping into it and amplifying it and mobilizing it in a, in a way that seems new and different um so yeah mm-hmm. i mean it, it becomes localized but it, it, i right. think it, it, you know a lot of the a lot of the the language and the, the the ways of communication it's very difficult when you're analyzing incel forums to to be sure that and half of them are not american mm-hmm. uh, at least on incels.is now uh, but they, you know, you can see the the ethnicities because they call themselves ethnic cells and they call themselves curry cells and rice cells. They use pejorative, racist terms to describe themselves because white masculinity is Chad, hmm. and they all aspire to Chad. So there's a horrific amount of internalized racism and and them being racist to each other. Um, but what was the question? No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, well, oh, yeah, it's really hard to analyze. Sorry, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. it's really hard to analyze the language because, you know, they all adopt this uh, quite similar lexicon. Now, every now and then you can see it. Right. Uh, somebody will say something that, you know, you know, oh, that's that person is from the UK because nobody, an American person wouldn't say it that way. So they right. let it slip. But, but it is a very kind of Americanized mode of communication, for sure. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the UK flavor, which I, I think of as sort of lad culture, or connected to lad culture. You mentioned that mm. in, in your talk. Um, there's a great book, I think it's by Willis or someone like that, about lad culture. So this is like individuals who are economically, you know, unlikely to do well in society and tend to lash out in ways that make their situations worse. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with sort of accurate awareness of their lack of class mobility and the sort of the nihilism that comes from that um, and a kind of rebellious response, which is, I think, understandable if unfortunate. Um, what do you see in sort of lad culture tying into this stuff? And like, like, how do we think about the role of class in this? Is this, lar- is this in large part like a economic class mobility issue where this would go away if we smashed capitalism? Yeah, I mean, I, say I, yes. <laughs> most things come back to smashing capitalism, right? Awesome. Um, if, <laughs> if you're going to solve them, uh, yeah, in a word, yes. <laughs> um, you can stop it. That's fine. That's good. We're good at that. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. And and you know, misogyny and capitalism, heteropatriarchal capitalism, work together. They've they've worked together forever and um, that's why my colleague Eugenia Sayapira makes that point that this is a time of turbulence and crisis and extreme misogyny because we're moving into a new techno-capitalist phase and so you know there's there's a disturbance about who's going to own stuff and who's in charge again uh, mm-hmm. as we shift you know it's the same when we shifted into uh, industrial capitalism or you know all of these seismic economic shifts um, usually come uh, with you know peaks in in misogyny that's mm-hmm. that's kind of her thesis so yeah uh, economics are, are really you know deeply tied into this of course but you know this this is not restricted to um 
to disenfranchise economically disenfranchised men. You know, there's there's really really wealthy middle class, upper middle class men who buy into all of this stuff as well. They're not even necessarily the architects or the orchestrators of a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it, you could argue, in a, in, I mean, obviously a patriarchal society, if you, if you subscribe to patriarchy, then it's in your interest, no matter where you sit on the class spectrum, to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to sign up. Um, to, mm -hmm. to that system, you're not going to benefit as much as other men, but you still benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, you know, there's always that pecking order. Um, mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. So we're starting to run a little short on time. I'm going to wrap up with a final question before I have to torture you. Um, we've talked about a couple different things that might help here. I have to acknowledge I am fairly pessimistic at the moment about sort of reversing these spirals in the manosphere. Are there any potential approaches to addressing these issues that you are somewhat optimistic about? Yeah, I, I am optimistic about education, but you know, it's the rate of change, trying to change curricula is so incredibly slow. Uh, and there has been some really significant progress here. There's been some amazing progress in Wales. Um, my colleague EJ Reynolds, uh, not, not solely, but she has been like a, a, an absolute force in um, in making a very progressive, inclusive uh, type of RSE mandatory in in Wales, and has worked with the Welsh government, um, you know, to, to make that kind of progress um, at some cost to mm -hmm. her, you know, to her own um, safety and and mental health with all of the attacks that she's gotten for that. Um, but I do think uh, that that changing the curriculum and and other you know there's a real need for other educational online interventions that kind of surpass the curriculum because it's the, the rate is just too slow so that yeah if those are slow can we do some short-term things would you know uh state-sponsored sex work or sex bots these are often <laughs> put forward as alternatives do you feel like those are going to be a solution and if not why oh, i don't think that they will be a solution i think that that that's not, you know, for for incels, maybe they could be a short-term solution, but for the manosphere generally, uh, the problem isn't access to women. Most most men who subscribe to anti-feminist men's rights have women in their lives or in relationships with women. Incels are a small subsection of the manosphere. You know, they live with women, they're fathers, they're, they're husbands, they're whatever, boyfriends, whatever. You know, they have plenty of access uh, to women. That's That's not the issue, it's their power relationship. Mm -hmm. with women that is the issue mm, thank you yeah that makes sense and even with incels you could argue that like they want respect and they're not going to get that from a sex bot right exactly well this has been a lot of fun um <laughs> <laughs> this is even more entertaining with y'all here thank you um i appreciate you being very generous unfortunately as a part of the patriarchy i do have to wrap up the show by torturing you a little bit uh so this is the enlightening round Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things, and you're going to tell me are these things real or not real. That is all you get to say. You don't get to explain. You don't get to hedge. Real or not real. Do you understand? You ready? I think so. Okay, great. This one's not as bad for non-philosophers. But here we go. First of all, because this is a philosophy show, I have to check. Do you think that anything is real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. Bodies, real or not real? Bodies. 
Real. All right. Mines, real or not real? <laughs> real. <laughs> Free will, real or not real? Ooh. Not real. Mm, luck, real or not real? I want a hedge now because this needs to be qualified. Ah, <laughs> sadly. Yeah, real. Okay. Demons? Not real. Afterlives? Real. Truth? Not real. Ooh. Beauty? Not real. Justice? Real. And finally, hope? Real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Great. Hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you all got to enjoy the facial reactions for once. Usually I'm the only one who gets to enjoy watching the torture. Um, Dr. Gang, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff online real quick? Sure. Uh, Debbie Gang on uh, Twitter, well, not Twitter, X. Uh, so I think I'm just at Debbie Gang. And uh, Debbie.Gang at DCU.ie is my email if you want to get in touch. Great, Thank and you. because Mike Hall will kill me if I run long, we are not gonna be having a VIP segment for this particular show, but it's been a lot of fun and I really appreciate it and folks should definitely check out your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. And thank you all for hanging out. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly voidling, Method Addict. And I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Void-Pilled Eldrick Farmer, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude... Fix the vote and grumble, grumble, and all the thanks to our Archduke level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Sorry there was no bonus content for you all this week, but hope you enjoyed that live world meet space vibe. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co host, Callie Wright of the Queers Planning Podcast. While you're at it, check out my wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals Podcast, and leave them all a five star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also come join the Philosophers in Space slash Embrace the Void Facebook group or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whatever depths of the internet you've plumbed, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.